about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Great God and Father, Your love is deep, true, insatiable, unconquerable. And Father, we just want to be a little bit more like You. But we know that we can't be unless You speak to us unless your spirit works within us. And so we pray you would be work among us now in this moment for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we've been speaking over the last three weeks from the book of Titus in the New Testament about how it is that the good news of Jesus Christ, the saving message that's gone out in all the earth, can make you into a good person. How it is that it is not that we make ourselves good and then God accepts us, but God radically accepts us in His grace and in that action transforms us and remakes us. But I think one of the things we haven't really thought about yet is our context. We live in a very complicated moment, don't we? In a society with very public uh, and problematic fault lines, in complicated international things happening all around us and lots of anxiety, really. What does it look like to be a good person in the midst of all of that? If I was to sum up what I've seen happening in the last few weeks in a whole bunch of different ways, I'd have to admit that Taylor Swift has got it right again. You know, for whatever, whatever it is she's doing which only she knows with her new single, Look What You Made Me Do, could be the slogan above pretty much everything I see happening. Uh, from foreign affairs between warring parties, look what you made me do, uh, to politicians, to people in relationships, to social media, look what you made me do. A slogan of vengeance, a slogan of responding out of hurt to cause hurt, a phrase that might be summed up, as it said in verse 3, of hating and being hated. How do you do good in a world like that? When your goodness might be hated. When things don't go so smoothly. Actually, an undercurrent through the entire book of Titus is the reality that it appears the Christians on Crete weren't actually liked that much. Uh, Titus has opponents, we learn in chapter 2. They're looking for reasons to slander the word of God in chapter 2. There are enemies amongst God's people. And, 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 and we're even told here the only negative command at the beginning is that they not slander their fellow credents, thinking that basically they're being slandered. This is, this is the same thing that they experience, that we are experiencing here today. And really what, what Paul wants to say to Titus and what he is to teach God's people is very simple. And if you took it as the, the, the building block of a society, it would have a remarkable difference. But even with its simplicity, it's almost impossible for humans to accomplish without the gospel. I think that's what Titus 3 really shows us. How we might get along as a society, and how really the gospel is the thing that must power, power it. 
So we're going to ask three questions. What's the simple thing? How come we can't do it? And how does the gospel enable it to happen? What is it? Why can't we do it? How does the gospel make it happen? So what is the one thing in Titus chapter 3 that could make things happen? What is the alternative to look what you made me do? Well, Titus is told something very simple. He says, Paul says, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, and to be ready to do whatever is good. You see, when society is complicated, Christians through the centuries have had the temptation of going, well, I'm just, I'm just through with this world. I'm done. I want to retreat. I want out of here. And to that, Paul says, you know what? Believers are to be full citizens of the city where God has placed them. They're to be subject to the authorities that God has put there. They're to be obedient to them. And even further, Paul says, they are to be ready to do whatever is good. Not just compliant citizens, but ardent seekers of whatever might be good. And the good here really is thinking about, well, just the common good of the city, the common good of the island, the common good of the little town in which they've been placed. Whatever might contribute toward the good of the people around them. And the tone in which that is to be done is quite simple as well in verse 2. They're not to slander other people, they're to be peaceable, considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. Rather than being nasty or petulant or hating, they're simply to be humble. You see, the antidote, according to Paul, is this. Humble goodness to all. That's what a Christian is supposed to be in their society. A wholehearted member seeking what is good in all humility. Can you imagine if that was a simple building block for every citizen in our city, how things might work a lot better? The common good, not my personal good, the common good. And when we have disagreements, going about it with humility rather than reactiveness. You know, uh, one person who I think really lived this out in our own city was uh, a reverend of actually St. Barnabas down the road in Broadway, Reverend Hammond. I forgot to get a picture for you. I'm sorry about that. He was uh, the minister down there in the 1930s during uh, the Great Depression. And in that time, there were people all around him who, who were being evicted from their houses. They, they lost their jobs, they couldn't pay their rent, people were kicking them out. What Reverend Hammond decided to do was dip into his life insurance, take out some money, enough to buy a plot of land in the Georges River region. And there he built a hundred very basic, they didn't even have sewerage, homes. And he said, find a hundred families, whose dad doesn't have a job and who have three kids and they can have it for a hundred pounds. And if they can't pay, that's fine. They can have it anyway. Remarkable. In a moment when the city was falling apart around him, he dipped into his own money for the sake of his city, for the sake of the people around him, regardless of who they were. He was ready to do whatever was good. 
He was seen preaching uh, to drunks before they went into court, uh, caring for them. He had uh, great things to do with the Aboriginal community. Uh, And every Sunday, he preached the gospel of grace fiercely. And every week, people came to faith. That is someone who is ready to do whatever is good in all humility. And that is a simple antidote, the simple reality of what we are to be in society. That's the simple what. But it's not that simple, is it? It's hard to be. And our society is not that. So the question is, why? Why is that so hard? And I think what you see in verse 3 is actually a very profound statement of what a human is and how it gets jammed up. Here we get a picture of why it is so hard for this to, to work. And really, I think you get a picture here of why normal, sensible, courteous people can become really nasty quite quick. Have a look. Verse 3 says this. And here he's talking to the credent Christians saying, you know, don't forget, when you look at someone who's not in the church, you were exactly the same. You and them, this is what we all are as humans. We, were, we have all been deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We live in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Now, I think through this verse, there's kind of a bit of a string of logic. You see how you move from the inside to the outside? You move from, you know, passions and pleasures and kind of the internal things to kind of more feely, malicey kind of things, then to kind of hatred. That's kind of the external work. There's kind of a whole stream of thought. And, and the idea is that what, goes, what happens with humans is we, 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 we get a passion or we lock onto a pleasure and we go all in on it. And it kind of tricks us. To the point where it stops serving us and we start serving it. And then we start to get jammed up. Let me give you an example to put bones on this. I read a really interesting article about a young woman um, who was explaining uh, her disastrous journey into Instagram, basically. Uh, And she was very popular, very well known on Instagram. Uh, But she describes how she she started out uh, just trying to get people to like her. And and so she decided at the beginning, I'm going to choose a brand. What kind of person am I going to be? And this is her brand. I think this is hilarious. I will be funny, carefree, unromantic, and a realist. Funny, carefree. I have no idea what that looks like as a package. And so she curated posts to be this person online. But what happens next is this. I built her, referring to her online self, without blueprints not knowing that she will become a wall with no doors. She stopped me from online dating because that would mean I care about romance. She stopped me from wearing pink because that would mean I'm too feminine. She goes on to say, it stopped me from running after the boy that I love and telling him what he needs to know because I'm afraid that I'll become uncool. You see what's happened here? Uh, There's a simple passion to be known and loved. Isn't that a great thing? And she finds a vehicle where she can get that. And she, she goes all in on that. And all of a sudden, the thing starts being in control. And she's serving it rather than it's serving her. 
And then what happens next in the story is there's this boy involved and she starts curating posts about him. And first the posts are really nice and she's trying to win him back. But then she says, day by day, hour by hour, my Instagram feed became more manic, nasty, and petulant. Posts that were once meant as romantic gestures became tiny, pixelated middle fingers. Don't you love that phrase? <laughs> tiny, pixelated middle fingers. She wants approval. She's now serving approval at all costs. And when someone won't give it to her, what happens? She starts to hate. How dare you don't approve of me? How dare you not love me? How dare you not come back to me? Can't you see? See the string of logic? You fall in love with something. You, you start to serve it instead of it serving you. You get envious of the people who have that thing and you don't have it and then you start hating them when they can't give it to you or they take it from you. You see, the reason why we end up hating is because the thing we love most in the world traps us. The reason why this simple vision of how a community could function doesn't work is because we all have these contested visions of what is best and good. And together it's just one hating mess. The vision is simple, and the why is this complex human picture. So how is it that the gospel makes you able to do that? Let me tell you two things from this passage about that answers that question. The first is this. In the gospel, God does what we never can. In the gospel... God does what we never can. And there's two ways this happens. You see, God is what we could never be. Now, I skipped a bit in verse 3, the first couple of words. We too were foolish and disobedient. You see, the first move humans make is against God before we move against each other. And the reason why we need something to serve is because we don't want to serve Him. The pixelated middle finger is first at Him, if you want to put it that way. And so God is stuck in this position, and there's us stuck in our hating. And what does he do? Does he show up with indignation, with a little bit of smug self-assurance, maybe a little bit of slight irritation, maybe a little bit of passive aggression, taps his finger and says, come on, what are you doing? What is he doing? Verse 4. When the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us. You see, when we were against God and hating one another, when we were at our very worst, He came with kindness and love. He responded to us in a way we never have been able to respond to each other. You know, that word love there, it's a really interesting word. It is literally the word philanthropy. You know the word philanthropy that Americans throw around, especially wealthy Americans, for the way they use money? Uh, you know, uh, philanthropy literally means love of humanity. God is actually the original philanthropist. He loves humanity. He loves all of humanity, regardless of how they treat Him, regardless of how they treat one another. He could use Taylor Swift's line, but refuses to. He shows up in love for His enemies. 
And, and what, Ty, what Paul is doing here is he's saying, you've got to paint that before all the, the Christians on Crete because the only way they're going to be able to love people who are different from them, who are hating them, is to know that that's exactly how God treated them. That he showed up with kindness and love, not hatred, not smug self-assurance, not slight irritation or passive aggressiveness. Love. See, God did what we never could in the person of Jesus Christ. But the second thing he does about this, that how he shows up in and does what we never could, is did you notice the way that salvation is described here? It's, it's really different to the way Paul kind of does this in other places. He says he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. How does he save us? How does he save us from that mess we tie ourselves in and the hatred toward him and others that we end up in? Well, it says here that he has to basically completely reboot us. It's a complete knockdown rebuild job. It's a complete renovation. Jesus Christ pours out the Holy Spirit upon us and renews us. I don't know if you've ever lived in a construction site. I spent a little bit of this year living in a construction site. Um, a lot of people know that now. Um, and, you know, if you, there's one thing you need to understand about me. It's that I am practically useless at most things. I can't build things. I can't fix taps. You know, and so living in a construction site just reminds me of my inability. You know, it's over now, thank goodness. But, you know, I walk in and I'm like, how is this going to become a house again? And I'm looking everywhere, I'm like, I can't even see the problems. And he's walking around finding problems and saying, we've got to fix this, we've got to fix that, we've got to fix that. I'm like, I don't know, you're the builder, I can't fix this. You know, it was like one big lesson also in, in, in what God was doing in my soul, actually. Because what a builder is to a house, the Holy Spirit is to the souls of men and women. The grand architect who always knows how to pinpoint the problem and radically remakes and reorders us from the inside out. You see, that is the only solution to being stuck in that place of passion and pleasure and hate. The complete knockdown and rebuild. A complete renewal of all our passion. A complete renewal of, of, of what our vision of what good is in the first place. And what Paul is trying to paint here is that, you know, the gospel is about how God fixes us, not how we fix ourselves. He fixes us through the gift of the Holy Spirit poured out through Jesus Christ. And everything we are, every good thing we have, every good thing we become is by and through Him. He does in and for us and models to us what we never could be or become by ourselves. The gospel makes it possible. But the second thing about the hell is this, and this is really where it hits the road, I think, in this chapter. You know how we talked about, um, what's her name? Taylor Swift at the beginning. Uh, you know, the, the thing behind that way of doing life is this. You put resentment at the center and you let everything order around it. You hurt me, so I'll hurt you. I'm resentful that you have this and I don't have. I hate you for this and so I'll hate you back. 
Resentment is at the, at the core. But the second thing the gospel does, you know what it does? It replaces resentment with hope. It replaces resentment with hope. In verse 8, it talks about having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. The hope that the gospel gives us gives us a new reason to relate to our society. In fact, if you go back and look at that, that first word uh, for what the Holy Spirit does, the washing of rebirth, that word is amazing. Uh, it only appears two times in the whole New Testament. Uh, and it literally means the second genesis, the second beginning. And the only other time it's used is on the lips of Jesus. And he, he uses it to describe the world that he is about to create. The kingdom of God. The day when all of this world is renewed. When everything is made right. When, you know, suffering and pain and hatred and misplaced desire is dealt with and gone. And country music doesn't exist anymore. He starts again. He's going to renew all things. And do you know what that, what that means? It says here that you are an heir of that. That that's your inheritance. That world is to come. And you know, same as when your parents might die, you'll receive something. It might be nothing. It might be dead. It might be wealth. So when you die and you go to be with Jesus, you will on that final day receive an inheritance of a new world. But the, the amazing thing is that in the, in the present, the Holy Spirit has rebirthed you already. You are part of God's future world in the present. You are the Terminator. You have been refitted by God's Holy Spirit you are a piece of the future, walking around in the present. In all of your blemishes and brokenness, your inner self is being renewed day after day. And you are a slice of his future, walking around. And you see, when you start putting that at the center, rather than resentment, when the hope of a new world and the reality that you are that in the present, that changes everything. When you look at the world then, you don't look at the things that have been taken from you. You look at the world that God is about to bring. You don't get frustrated uh, about what people uh, might or might not have or, or the way they're treating you. You get frustrated that the world isn't, isn't anything near the way that God's going to bring it about one day. You see, what hope does is make you restless. It doesn't make you peaceful. If what you have makes you peaceful, it's a nice thought, but it's not hope. Hope makes you chafe under the weight of the present world because you are so longing for the world to come. Because you are a slice of it in the present. It, it almost tugs you toward it so that when you live in this world, you start to live and you're ready to do whatever might be good in view of that future to come. When you wake up Tomorrow morning, and you look in the mirror, you look at yourself, 
and you say, I am the Terminator. I am no longer a slave. I belong to the future. I am future hardware in a present broken world. And I will resist hatred in view of His love. And I will be ready to stretch forward in every act in resistance toward His future. You see, the gospel readies you to do good. The hope of heaven, the appearance of God, the work of the Holy Spirit, they ready you, remake you in a way nothing else can. So that as Titus goes on uh, and is told that you must stress these realities because when people, when the penny drops in their heart, they'll devote themselves to doing what is good. These things I've explained, they are excellent and they are profitable. They'll move people forward. See, the vision is simple, humble goodness to all. The problem is us and our passions and desires. But in the gospel, we are remade and hope hope replaces resentment so we can actually live for the common good in the present. But as we conclude, it's worth recognizing one more reality. And that's that we're really afraid. And that the world at the moment feels like a crowd that might just crush us completely. Do you feel that? Feels like a crushing weight at the moment. And I think the reason why we feel that is that us modern people have constructed our feeling of whether we're okay around the opinions that other people give us. It's like we're constantly looking around to others and wondering, can you tell me, am I okay? Like, am I, am I all right? Uh, is this okay with you? Is this, is this all right? We're so addicted to the horizontal that when we might have to live in society in dissonance and difference, it is terrifying. But you know what the gospel gives you? A different verdict, and it's not horizontal. It's vertical. Paul says, you know, what the gospel gives you is justification, which is God's declaration that you are okay. Not because you're great, but because of the grace of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus Christ was actually crushed by the crowd. A mob formed. And they all yelled against him, despite how great and good and magnificent he was. They cried for his blood. They declared his verdict as no. And he walked to the cross because of their cries. And God himself said no. Why? So God might say yes to you. That he might declare you okay. Righteous. You see, it's only if you can wear around the righteousness of Christ like a breastplate day by day that you'll actually be able to live for the common good. I remind myself of that daily at the moment. Before I get up to preach in the morning, I say, Matt, get your breastplate on. It doesn't matter how good you are today. The verdict is in. You're okay. By grace, the verdict has been passed on you. So friends, do not look on the horizontal to your culture for the verdict. 
Look up to your Father by the grace and blood of the Son and walk in humility toward common goodness out of the example of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father, uh, we are in awe of your love that you, you do what we can't do in Jesus. You come in love when we would never come in love. You respond to us in a way we would never respond to others. And then because of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, you pour out the Spirit from on high and He is renovating us, even this evening, reordering us, that great architect of souls. Father, we want to be remade. We want to lose our fear. We want to gain humility. We want to gain the kindness of love of Jesus and the vision of the common good. And we want this not for our sake, but for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.